According to citydata.com, about 7% of the population trades cars every two years. 14% opt for a newer vehicle every three years. 4% every four years, 4% every five years. 25% of car owners swap vehicles every five plus years. And 40% of the population say they drive their car until the wheels fall off. You know, some people swap cars because they want to be seen driving the latest and the greatest. To them, a car isn't just transportation, it's a status symbol. Other folks are problem avoiders. They drive their car until the warranty elapses, then they trade. They don't want the hassles of repairs and upkeep. Still other drivers like me are pragmatic. We find a car we like, one that fits our lifestyle, it's comfortable, it's reliable, it gets the job done, and we keep it up. We change the oil, and we service the chassis, and we tune up the engine. The automobile is an investment. We know what we've got. There's some familiarity. And besides, I can make a lot of repairs for the cost of a car note. And here's why I bring all this up. Church attendance for many Christians is not a whole lot different than the buying habits of many car owners. You see, some folks seek out the latest in the greatest church in the community. They want to attend the hipster church. To them, church is a status symbol. Of course, this necessitates trading churches every few years since there's always somebody moving into the neighborhood with a cooler vibe or a slicker logo or more contemporary music. These folks end up the church hoppers. Sadly, though, they never build any spiritual equity. After a few years, they're upside down. They owe more than they've given. It catches up, and it results in a hollow, superficial Christian experience for themselves and for their kids. Then there's the problem avoiders. They want to be part of a church as long as there's no conflict. They want the hassle-free warranty. You know, it's nice to be new. We all like you if you're new because none of us know you. And you like us. Oh, they're so wonderful over there because you don't know us. But once we both break the ice and discover neither of us are what we're cracked up to be, we realize that some upkeep and some repair needs to be done. This is more than some church attenders can bear, so they split. But there's a third type of church member. Church becomes an investment. You find a good church, a church that's reliable, one that gets you to your destination. You roll with it until the wheels come off, so to speak. Even though it involves some costly repairs at times, and upkeep can be a hassle, you trust what you've got. You, you stay. You build some spiritual equity. You end up with relationships that have meaning and substance. Well, in light of this fall's celebration of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain's first 30 years, I've been teaching a series of messages on the church. Church mechanics, we're calling it. Popping the hood on the church. We've seen the church's muscle car power. We've kicked the tires and we've surveyed God's instructions here in 1 Timothy. 
Last time we talked about taking the keys, the privileges, and the responsibilities of pastoring God's people. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about church ownership. You see, under the hood of any car, you'll find various mechanical systems. The brake system, and the fuel system, and the cooling system, and the electrical system, and the steering system, and the transmission system. And each assembly operates independent of the others, yet they all contribute to the car's performance. Likewise, there are different components in a faithful church. Now, I've organized the systems in five ways. We're going to talk about ownership, leadership, fellowship, doctrine, and worship. These are the five threads that weave their way through 1 Timothy and that hold the church together. Without these threads, we'd come unraveled. We'd sputter, we'd stall out, we'd fail to reach our destination. Well, the first, the first system and our subject today is ownership in the church. Reminds me of the couple in Louisiana. They had applied for an FHA home loan. They needed a lawyer to provide a clear title. And since the title dated back to 1803, it took this lawyer several months to track down the ownership history. The FHA, they thanked the attorney for his diligence, but noted he had only cleared the title back to 1803. They needed a clear title from the origin of, of the, the property. And so the lawyer, he, he wrote a letter to the bureaucrats at the FHA. This is what he said. Your letter regarding title in case number 189156 has been received. I was unaware that any educated person would not know that Louisiana was purchased from France in 1803. France acquired it from Spain by right of conquest. It came into the possession of Spain by right of discovery, made in the year 1492 by a sea captain named Christopher Columbus. He gained the privilege from the Spanish monarch Isabella. The good queen was more careful about titles than the FHA, so she secured the blessing of the Pope before she sold her jewels to finance the expedition. Since the Pope is a servant of Jesus, the Son of God, and since it is commonly accepted that God is the creator of the world, I believe it's safe to presume that God also made that part of the world called Louisiana. Thus God would be Louisiana's owner of origin. And since God had no beginning and dates back to before the beginning of time and the world as we know it and the FHA, I hope you'll find God's original claim to be satisfactory. Now what about our loan? You've dealt with these bureaucrats at the FHA. Well, it turns out the Louisiana couple got their home loan. But in the same sense, we could say that the owner of the church is Jesus. For our Lord Himself claimed that He is God's ultimate owner of the church. In the cool shade there of a mountain retreat, high up in the Golan, Jesus huddled with His disciples. He commented on His church before the church existed. Jesus spoke prophetically, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. According to Jesus, the church is His church. It belongs to Him. Jesus is the ultimate owner of the church. I've read where hundreds of church buildings today in North Dakota are up for sale. 
Evidently, a dwindling population has forced some of these prairie churches to close their doors and be sold at auction. But that's not the case with the church. Over the last 2,000 years, the church has never had to change hands. It's never needed new ownership. Let there be no confusion, no ambiguity over who owns our church. Jesus refers to this in all churches as my church. Now, legally, the state of Georgia treats Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain as a corporation responsible to a board of directors, which, according to our bylaws, is our elders. I, as the pastor, have no personal ownership in any of the assets. But spiritually, Jesus is the Lord and head of our church. In Acts, Paul appointed pastors and elders to oversee the churches that he started. Deacons also stepped up in practical ways. Godly men were entrusted with leadership. But the church has and always will belong to Jesus. You see, in America, our government is of the people and by the people and for the people, but not in the church. Church government is of Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus. Preeminence in the church is reserved for our Lord Jesus. And Jesus didn't receive this position without earning his supremacy. Understand, Jesus isn't the head honcho around here just because his daddy's God. Or because he's the biggest guy to picnic. No, no, no. Jesus paid his dues. Through his sinless life, through his blood, sweat, and tears, Jesus earned the right to be Lord. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. We were the devil's hostage. Sin required a penalty we couldn't afford to pay. And on the cross, Jesus bought our freedom with his sacrifice. His body butchered. His blood spilt. Now the church belongs exclusively to Jesus. And yet this is not the way most churches operate, especially in America. Sadly, churches in our country tend to mirror our government. We bring democratic principles to bear on the church. One person, one vote. We expect the right to decide collectively what is or isn't the will of God. This is the American way, democracy at work. There's only one problem. It's not biblical. Nowhere does the New Testament teach or exemplify congregational rule. The church belongs to Jesus. And the Lord, through His Spirit, chooses godly men to seek His will and exercise His authority. Now remember how Paul refers to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. We spent a whole morning on this. Chapter 3, verse 15. There he grows emphatic. Paul becomes bold. He tells Pastor Timothy why the church is such a big deal to God and why it needs to be a bigger deal to us. He says that we're the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. This term church, it's the translation of the Greek word ekklesia. It refers to a gathering. An ekklesia is a gathering. We're called out of the world. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to do it together, and we're called to stand for the truth. And this assembly, this gathering, is alive and animated by the Spirit of the living God. 
Obviously, God dominates and directs and derives glory from His church. You see, God owns the church. But there are other verses in 1 Timothy where Paul implies that Timothy should take some ownership in the local church. God owns it, but Timothy needs to take some ownership. One example is verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. See, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But he must have viewed it as some temporary stopgap assignment. This is why Paul tells Tim, remain at Ephesus. Stay there now. Stay put. Sink some roots. Exhibit some longevity. Be committed. Be invested in this church, Timothy. Timothy evidently was just biding time, skating along. He, he wasn't going to get too involved or make too many waves. He was just babysitting, not parenting. And yet Timothy, and yet Paul is telling Timothy in this letter to step up and to take charge. In chapter 1, verse 3, he needs to charge some. Later in chapter 6, verse 17, he's told to command those. In other words, Timothy needs to take some ownership, some personal responsibility in what's happening. Paul also writes at the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. And you sense that Paul is worried that Timothy may not be getting it. Oh, Timothy. You know, God has taken his truth and his gifts, and his authority, and his concern, and his wisdom. And he's entrusted it all to Timothy. It's in his hands. Timothy has some ownership in this. Timothy needs to stop waiting on relief. There's nobody warming up in the bullpen, Timothy. God is counting on you to finish this game. This is why Paul charges him in chapter 1, verse 18, to wage the good warfare. In chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells his young protege, if he proves faithful in this assignment, he'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. But here's the point. Ministry is up to Timothy. It's his game to win or lose. Timothy is responsible. See, whenever a financial investor puts his own money into the company he's recommending, we say he's got some skin in the game. You've heard that expression? It's now personal for him. The advisor is also a stakeholder. And Paul is telling Timothy that he too needs to have some skin in the game. Jesus owns the church, yes. But every Christian needs to take ownership in what he or she has been called to do. You need some skin in the game. Each of us is responsible for our part. Have you ever noticed that nobody washes a rental car? You ever notice this? I mean, over the years, I've flown in and out of a lot of airports, and I've rented dozens of cars. I have a tough time reminding myself that I'm responsible for bringing it back with a full tank of gas. Why? Because it's not my car. I'm certainly not going to take any time or spend any money getting it a wash and a wax. And this is the attitude that a lot of people have toward church. Oh, it's just a rental. Oh, I'm not going to tear anything up while I'm there or crash it or anything, but I'm not going to make a big investment in it either. It's not mine. 
But Pastor James mentioned last week that he gets frustrated when people who attend Calvary Chapel week after week talk to him about your church or this church or y'all's church instead of referring to it as my church or our church. I mean, are you just a third-party observer or are you a first-hand participant? Too many Christians want to distance themselves from the church lest they get saddled with some obligation. Hey, if you attend Calvary Chapel, you need some skin in the game. You need to take some ownership and sense some responsibility. If you've ever done much snow skiing, you realize the difference between renting skis and bringing your own. If you're skiing on rentals, you'll ski anywhere, man. Over rocks, over concrete, over small children. It doesn't matter. You'll ski right across the parking lot, right up to your car. Why not? They're just rentals. But if you're downhilling on your own skis, man, it's another matter because skis are expensive. And this is why you're careful and you're cautious. You're not going to dare scrape the bottoms of your skis or cut grooves in your skis. You don't want to dent those edges. You would never ski over pavement and risk damaging your skis. You see, there's a huge difference between a renter's and an owner's mentality. This is why Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. When a person shows up with a set of keys, keys imply ownership. I mean, usually you don't have keys to something you don't own. I own a Toyota pickup. The dented tailgate lets you know it's me. I'm one of the 40%, 46% of the population that drives it until the wheels come off. On a rare occasion, I'll let my friend or my kid, well, not my kids. Uh, <laughs> I'll let a friend or I'll let my wife drive my truck. But I'm the only person with a set of keys. Generally speaking, you don't have the keys to a house or a car unless you have a stake in its ownership. This is why Jesus' words to the disciples regarding his soon-to-be church were so astonishing. There, up in the forest of Caesarea Philippi, not only did he say that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it, but he also gave to Peter the keys to the kingdom. You're going to have a stake in this, Peter. You're going to be an owner of this, Peter. As it turns out in Acts, every time the doors to God's kingdom swung open to a new people group, guess who was there to turn the key and welcome folks in? It was Peter. With the Jews on the day of Pentecost, in Samaria, with the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. Yes, the church is owned and operated by Jesus, but apparently Jesus wanted Peter to also have a sense of ownership in this new venture. And the same is true for us. Yet, this is sort of a precarious balance to strike. Christians either approach the church with a renter's mentality, or they want to run the show. Some people are apathetic and nonchalant, while other people expect to have a say in all the decisions. Folks want either no ownership or greater ownership. Now here's why it's so difficult for us to get a balance when we talk about church ownership. In a country like ours, founded on capitalistic principles, the term ownership 
is laced with all kinds of economic overtones. When we think of ownership, concepts like investment and control and equity and dividend come to mind. Ownership is an economic tool that people use for the owner's benefit. Ultimately, what you own is for your gain, and it's subject to your control. And this attitude seeps into American churches. When a person takes ownership in a church, it's usually contingent on how it's going to benefit them. This is the assumption. You give a sizable offering on a regular basis, and then you expect to have a say in church matters, perhaps a position on the board. Make an investment of money or time or service, and you expect to have something to show for it, at least some recognition. I'll never forget the Baptist church that I attended as a kid. They had gold name plates on the end of each pew. So that to raise money, the church encouraged you to purchase your own pew. You could dedicate it to a loved one. The biggest contributors got a building dedicated in their name. So often the idea behind church ownership is if I buy a tangible piece of the church, a pew or a brick or a chair, I'll benefit personally from the investment. I'll gain some control or some recognition privileges will accrue to my family but you see this is why churches blow up and squabbles arise and congregations split to raise funds or to solicit support the pastor prostitutes the church he sells it off one piece at a time to placate or to motivate other people until one day everybody in the church suddenly thinks that this is my church they feel entitled. They clutch on to their piece of the ministry and don't let go. A church that's owned by Jesus alone gets ripped apart by selfishness and by pride. Often the presiding pastor was his own worst enemy. He created this warped sense of ownership and the greedy entitlement that it produced. At Calvary Chapel, this is why we don't have a budget. Understand, we work off sound budgetary principles. We control our spending. We forecast our expenses. We believe where God guides, He provides. That means that if He's not providing, He's not guiding. We don't spend more than we receive. Our church's only debt is our mortgage that we're working hard to pay down. But when a church has a full-blown budget and every department is afforded a specific sum to run on, it produces this sense of entitlement. I mean, the worship ministry, man, we have to spend our money for this year or next year, they're going to cut our budget. What about the school, man? My kids go to the school. We need to make sure the school gets the same kind of funding. Or what about the ministry that I enjoy? And suddenly, we find ourselves looking out for what interests us rather than the good of the whole. You see, when church ownership isn't properly understood and embraced, people become territorial. Competition and division result in the church. Everyone holds on to their piece of the pie while the real owner gets neglected. The church isn't like Prudential, 
We don't all own a piece of the rock. Everybody needs to take ownership in our church, but none of us own our church. As Christians, we're stakeholders, not shareholders. You see, church ownership isn't divided up into a lot of little shares that each of you get. And the more you give, then you get more shares. That's not how it works. Jesus owns all the shares, okay? He's got them all. But each of us has a stake in what happens to and through our church. Hey, be here. That's a great way to support your church, to be a stakeholder. Give to God in proportion to what He's given to you. When you see a need, take responsibility and meet that need. Take a bag of trash to the dumpster. Straighten a row of chairs. Pop in on a day off and ask if there's any way you can help out. This is how you take ownership. When your church launches a new initiative, don't grumble that you didn't have a say in the decision or that it's no longer convenient for you. Don't pull back from your church. Trust God to guide your leaders. Maintain a stake in what's happening. Own the church's new direction. You see, the buzzword in many churches today is this term, ownership. Pastors are encouraged to cultivate in their people a sense of ownership in the ministry. Christians need to own their faith. People need to take ownership in the mission of the church. And I agree, sort of. But the problem in America is that ownership often assumes entitlement. And in the church, the only person entitled to gain or glory or praise is Jesus. Not you and not me. Let me suggest a new buzzword. Stewardship. Now, now rather than ownership, here's an older term. But it's much more biblical. Stewardship. In Titus 1 verse 7, Paul refers to the church elders as stewards of God. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In the Roman world, a steward was a household slave who had proven himself to be particularly competent and appreciative and loyal to his master. Think of an office manager, or think of an on-the-job foreman. A steward wasn't the owner, but he represented the owner, and he managed the master's business as if it belonged to him. A steward was heavily invested in the business. And according to Paul, his job was simple. The next verse there in 1 Corinthians 4 reads, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You see, the owner was responsible for supplying the resources in the plan, but it was the steward's job to carry it out. And God has called us to be stewards. Hey, I am heavily invested in this church. I've given this church 30 years of my life. My whole adult life has been spent pastoring Calvary Chapel and, and, and trying to help grow its people. If anybody can say, this is my church, it should be me. But I don't own this church any more than you do. We're all just stewards of God. I'm not the owner. In fact, if I bring shame to the cause of Christ 
my role in this church would be and should be terminated. My sense of ownership comes not from any legal or economic or proprietary motive, but from my calling that God has placed on my life. That's the role that I have to play. I'm just a steward of Jesus, and my job is to be faithful. It reminds me of an early leader in the Salvation Army. His name was Samuel Bringle. Bringle was this brilliant author and scholar. He left a lucrative job to join William Booth's army. But Booth put him in charge of the lowly task of shining shoes. He told Bringle, you've been your own boss for too long. Bringle could have taken it as a slight, but rather than complain, he humbled himself and he learned to serve and eventually became a leader. You see, here's the balance we need in the church. We don't need haughty folks taking over, but neither do we need lazy folks who aren't taking part. We need every believer to own whatever the owner calls them to do. Here's another way to illustrate this balance. The Atlanta Braves are owned by some mysterious corporation called Liberty Media Group. Never heard of it. But they own the Atlanta Braves. Heard of the Atlanta Braves. Without Liberty Media, the Braves would have flopped this year rather than make it to the playoffs. Liberty sets the direction and they pay the bills and they provide the players their outrageous salaries. I mean, Liberty fueled the entire baseball operation, yet Liberty Media didn't throw a single pitch all season. Neither did they ever come to plate and never swung a bat the whole season. They didn't. In fact, Bobby Cox, he wasn't the team's owner, but he took ownership of the clubhouse and the lineup and the strategy and the on-field management. A whole host of players, from rookies to seasoned veterans, from Eric Hinsky, one of my favorites, to Billy Wagner, they all stepped up in crucial times and owned their place on the team. They took responsibility for their role, and they delivered in clutch situations with clutch performances. You see, the players weren't owners, but they took ownership. And this is what a church, a good church, will look like. It will look like a well-run team. The players will trust the owner to provide them what they need. The ownership will count on the players to step up and fulfill their role on the team in clutch moments. The manager represents the owners, but he also encourages the team. Jesus owns this church. You need to own the role that you've been called to play, and I need to represent Jesus while encouraging and teaching you. Well, here's a vital verse. I want to show you one other verse. It connects to this thread of church ownership. It's 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Here we're told, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Notice this. Elders are supposed to rule well. Leaders should do a good job managing the affairs of the church. Now, now, some churches are sloppy and careless in their oversight. Stuff slips through the cracks. The building is never clean. Publications look cheesy. The financials are in shambles. Nothing is ever done with excellence. Now, I'm not suggesting we're perfect. We're far from it. At times, we get stretched thin. We could certainly do a better job communicating. There's lots of room for improvement. But I promise you, we work hard. We're not lackadaisical. 
We apply rigorous thought and prayer to our leadership. We want to be elders who rule well. One of my great, greatest frustrations is to launch a new initiative and then have someone question whether I really thought it through. I mean, did you think of this contingency, Sandy? Did, did you consider that obstacle? As if I was just shooting from the hip. Now, I don't mind you scrutinizing my decisions. Trust me, I don't. In fact, I might have made the wrong decision. I, I'm quick to admit that when it's true. But rarely do I make a decision that wasn't thought out. Just ask my wife. I usually beat a decision to death before I ever pull the trigger. And that's not only true of me, it's true of our whole team. You see, at the moment, I, I look around and I consider what's happening, and I think things here at Calvary Chapel are running very well. Women's ministry and men's ministry and youth's ministry and children's ministry have never been better. Calvary 316 has new digs and is growing. Calvary Chapel Christian School is back on solid physical footing. The church is paying its mortgage and meeting its payroll. We're hosting conferences to help other churches and distribute Bible teaching online. Scores of other ministries flow from within and, and within and from and go outside the walls of this church. I, I'll say it eventually. Recently, we've navigated some difficult internal issues. And we've initiated some changes in methodology. Hey, after 30 years, we still want to be led by the Holy Spirit, not, not by our habits. I hope to be among those elders who Paul would say, rule well. And here's what motivates me. It all goes back to this subject of church ownership. Jesus holds the exclusive rights to His church. He is the sole proprietor. And because I love Jesus and I've been called by Jesus, I want to represent Him well. That means that I'm willing to take ownership of the role He's called me to play. I want to be a good steward. How about you? Don't be the driver who trades for the latest and greatest every two years. Don't be the problem avoider who's afraid of repairs and upkeep. If you found a good church, man, ride it until the wheels come off, so to speak. Remain where you're called. Guard what's been entrusted to you. Shed the renter's mentality. Get a little skin in the game. God gives you a key, some ownership. Do it well for the sake of the owner. Father, thank you for your words today, for these thoughts here in 1 Timothy. Lord, we pray that in the coming weeks, as we continue to consider uh, your church, Lord, help us to gain your perspective. Lord, I just sense in my heart that the church is such a huge deal to you. May it be a bigger deal to us. Show us, Lord, the things we need to see in the coming weeks. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.